be in education, you can be in education. It did not matter what we wanted to be. She said we could do it. And that to me was very important. I want to be able to influence others like that. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? Good afternoon. My name is Adrienne King, and I am a middle school math teacher. I have been teaching for 14 years, and the role of Black educators is important because representation matters. I work in a suburban school, and for my students who come from the inner city to my school, it's important for them to see the accomplishments that I've made. It's important for them to see that you can be an educator. It's not just being an educator. It's important to get a degree. It's important to get a trade. And I think that that's important as well for us to communicate that a four-year college degree might not be what every student needs and that trades are okay, that hands-on work is okay, and just encouraging our Black students to embrace that because so often they have been told that they need four-year schools, four-year college, four-year college. And once they leave my school, my classroom, they go to the high school, they get thrown into that first year of college and then they are forgotten about. So I think that representation matters and speaking to what they need. Yes, celebrating the trades and celebrating all of the pathways, so many different pathways to careers that students sometimes don't even know about because they're only told about one way. So yes for that. Now, where are you from, Miss King? I am originally from Ogden, Utah, but I lived in Huntsville, Alabama for the last 20 years. Okay, Utah to Alabama. So I've only ever met one other black person from Utah, and I didn't even meet her in person in real life. I only met her via the internet. Tell us about what it was like growing up for you in Utah. Well, me and my sister were probably one of the only black students in our class. We had cousins, but they were mixed. And so it was quite difficult, to be honest. We had teachers that didn't necessarily understand us. Some of the jokes or things that they said were not appropriate. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized the situation happening. When I was in second grade, I was sent here to Alabama to live with my aunt, who was a second grade school teacher. And she taught me for my second grade year. I had dyslexia and I was labeled as ADD, ADHD, told I needed to be put on Ritalin, and no one was really willing to help me until I came here. And that was important because not every student is ADHD, but a lot of times I know our African-American students are labeled with different things instead of figuring out what their disability might be. And then they are often told to be medicated. 
And so I feel like it was more of a culture shock for me coming to Alabama than when I moved to Korea for six months where I taught. Because at least in Korea, there was different nationalities. And I feel when I came to Alabama and I was submerged into a majority Black community, it was a lot harder for me than when I was at home because I was so introverted that I just stayed in my pocket and it was just real difficult. So as a child, I didn't realize that I was experiencing racism, but when I look back at it, I was. Hmm. Do you remember some of your K through eight minus the second grade experience that you kind of spoke of, but what was it like for you growing up in Utah during those years? So to be honest, I, I I thought it was Hispanic for a very long time because that was another Brown person and that's who I connected with. And so in school, I went to a small private school and it was either white or Hispanic. And I remember when I was probably about fifth grade, a young man on the basketball court, you know, we were outside playing basketball and I was always a tomboy. I remember he called me the N word and, you know, my sister, my older sister always stood up for me and she was like, you don't say that to us. And I didn't really realize what it was or why it was bad. My cousins, you know, we were all kind of taken back. There's probably about four of us. And then, you know, the teacher, I remember going, the teacher coming to my parents' car when they came to pick us up and the way they were explaining the situation. And at that point I realized, oh, something's not right about this. And the way the teacher was trying to cover up or trying to make it seem like it wasn't as bad as it was, was hard. When I was probably about first, maybe second grade, my teacher stood me up at the front of the classroom and pulled my hair out from my braids and or from my ponytail, whatever I may have had, and told me to stand like the Statue of Liberty. You know, we were called Picaninnies. And that's why we were brought here to Alabama. And my mom, who was on the school board, worked to get that teacher removed. And so, yeah, our parents didn't necessarily talk to us about racism because, you know, who wants to talk to their first, second grader about that? And so I think by the time I got to that fifth grade experience and I didn't have that understanding, that's when my parents started talking to me about it. And that's when my viewpoint and vision changed. And it was about the time of Rodney King, the riots in L.A., and we had that conversation. And at that point, I think the world changed for me. Mm. So you started off in Utah, and then you had your experience in Alabama. Where did you go to high school? I went to high school back home in Utah. I was only here in Alabama for one year. Okay. Um, And so when I got back to Utah, I continued on. But that teacher that was there was removed. She was gone. And so my mom felt comfortable bringing us back. And so, well, my parents felt comfortable bringing us back. And so I was there. I went to high school in Utah. And it wasn't until my freshman year of college when I returned to Alabama to come to an HBCU that I had outside of my aunt, my first African-American teacher. Shout out to Alabama and shout out to auntie. So what led you to begin a career in education, especially in math? 
Is it because you had this relationship with reading and English because of the dyslexia that you fell in love with numbers or how'd you get there? So interestingly enough, in high school, we had to do a project, a research project on a career that we wanted to do. We had to shadow the person and all this. And that was junior year. And I wanted to be a physical therapist. I went with a physical therapist, followed her, tracked her, worked with her. And I did that probably for about two weeks. And I realized that was not what I wanted to do. That was not what I wanted to do. It was a lot of work. It was strenuous. You had to carry people. And I'm not really a blood type of person. And so I was like, oh, I'll do physical therapy. It's still kind of in the medical field. But even while I was there, I saw blood. And I had to deal with people's excretions, (laughs) for lack of a better word. And I was like, I'm good. So in that same year, it was our English teacher that had us do this project. My math and science teacher was just amazing. Even though she was a white female, she was a female. And she always poured into us. She said, you can do anything. If you want to go and be an engineer, you can be an engineer. If you want to be a stay-at-home mom, you can be a stay-at-home mom. If you want to be in education, you can be in education. It did not matter what we wanted to be. She said we could do it. And that, to me, was very important. Very important. And and it real, it made me think, you know what? I want to be able to influence others like that. I want to be able to tell them that they can be whatever they want to be. I want to do that. And my senior year of high school, I had another teacher who, he was just fun. He didn't make, you know, it was math. And math, I just understand numbers and I understand patterns. And so it works. And it could be the dyslexia where, you know, my brain just is that different pathway, but it just always made sense. And so he made it fun. And I was like, you know what? I think I want to be a math teacher. Well, I came to college and I got my undergrad in mathematics. You know, my mom is a mathematician and she said, just get your undergrad in mathematics and then get your certificate or your master's in education. So you always have something to fall back on in that basis. And that's what I did. And I got my undergrad in mathematics. I got a chemistry minor. And so I'm that science world, that math brain. And then I got my master's in education. And I actually have my national boards. I'm a nationally board certified teacher in early adolescence mathematics. Shout out to you, Miss King, and this journey. And shout out to your educators in high school that really poured into you and let you know that you could be anything. And also your teacher that made math fun. Educators, teachers really are Earth's mightiest superheroes. And it's amazing when a grown-up is able to pour into a child and cultivate and help them recognize their brilliance. So shout out to them. Yes, yes, yes. Now, you said you went to your HBCU where you got your first black educator that was not a family member. What HBCU did you go to? I went to Oakwood College. Well, actually, it's Oakwood University, formerly Oakwood College. It is actually the only... HBCU, that is an Adventist institution, and that is my religion. So it's really cool because I was able to go to basketball events. I was able to do all these different things because they were catered and tailored for me. Yes, sure. Oh, yes, for this educational experience. So it seems like you really had an opportunity to 
go from a space where you were not affirmed and did not have a strong sense of identity to going to college where all parts of your identity were affirmed at that institution. Yes. And my grandmother's an educator as well. She was a speech pathologist. And so if I had to say who was my first teacher, that was my first teacher, right? My grandma, then my aunt. And from the time I can remember, my mom told me and my sister, you are coming to Oakwood. You are going to get an HBCU education. You're going, you're going, you're going. So it was just always known. And when I came here to Alabama, growing up in Utah, you know, I was the base of the pyramid if I was going to be a cheerleader. I was the big boned, thick girl. And I came to school and people were telling me, you need to eat. You're so skinny. What's going on? What's this? And that, like you said, it was the whole experience, the whole cultural experience of, you know, it's okay that your hair is kinky. We're going to wear it natural. We're going to do all these different things with it. And guess what? I'm not going to touch your hair because I can touch my own. And that in and of itself, I didn't have to answer the questions of, is that your hair? Right? If it ain't my hair, they knew it wasn't my hair. <laughs> it wasn't a question. They just knew. And and so that everything. But because when I was younger and I would come to visit here, I was so afraid and so just into myself. I didn't get to experience all of that and all the embracing of my community and of my culture until I came to college. And I had to realize, you know what? You're going to have to step outside of yourself and you're going to have to meet people and you're going to have to do things. And I think as an educator, that's one thing I try to instill in my students. It's difficult. And I tell them all the time, I'll pull out pictures of myself and I'm like, y'all, I was gawky in middle school. I was struggling with my identity till this day. I think we all do, but we have to come to the place where we are like, you know what, no matter what, I love myself for who I am. Yes, Miss King. That takes us into the next question. Like, so now that you've been an educator for 14 years, have you found that you have a shared sense of identity or connectedness between you and your black students? And if so, how did you recognize that? So the connectedness that I have is sometimes just a look, sometimes just an understanding. I have been in education through three different presidential elections. Two of them were Barack Obama. Sorry, four. I apologize, four. Two of them were Barack Obama. Then we had the 2016, and now we have the 2020. And in just being able to look at me, be able to, you know, they might have some fear and some trepidation, and they're able to talk to me about their concerns, you know, and they... What I re- what I decided to do a couple years ago is I started wearing my black girl magic shirts, my earrings, my black empowerment shirts, any type of representation that would let them know I am here standing with you. And that is one thing that they'll come and talk to me about. I've worn my hair in all different styles. I have twist out. I have flat twist. I have box braids. I have cornrows. I have straight hair. I have everything in my hair within the span of a school year. And when they come and see me or they speak to me, they're like, oh, Miss King, I like your hair. Or I did this with my hair or this or that. And I can talk to them about it, especially my young ladies. Now with the men, sometimes it's a little harder because I am the mama. You know, I'm the mama bear that's fussy. 
and at them, and they hear that quite a bit at home. But what I've tried to do is match them with the male teacher, and we talk, and we're like, here, we're here to encourage you. And that is really important to me. Another thing that's really important for me is because, like I said, I work in a suburban school. A lot of times, at least in the early part of my career, my coworkers would talk about how bad certain groups of kids were. And I debunked that. I would say, no, so-and-so and so-and-so are doing the same thing. Or this group and this group aren't doing that. And I would, I've now shifted the culture in that school. They might still be talking about it, but they're not doing it with me. Mm-hmm. And my students are being able to benefit from that because they're not being labeled. I also, when we're in the school, in the hallways pre-COVID, and you'd have your pockets of football players, predominantly black, basketball players, predominantly black. You know, you've got your Hispanic groups, you've got your baseball players, predominantly white. You have all these pockets, no problem. But I would notice that the teachers, when it was time to disperse, would only go up to the predominantly black groups because I'll be honest, we're a little louder. We are. They would only go up to them and shoo them along to class. And so what I made it a point to do is I went to every single group and I would tell those teachers, if you're going to send those groups on, you need to send these groups on. You need to send everybody on. And again, I have now started to change that paradigm, that expectation that they know, oh, you know what? If we're going to do it for one group of kids, we got to do it for the other. And that I believe is very, very, very important that the kids see that that the parents see that and that my coworkers and surrounding community see if we're going to do one for one thing, we got to do it for all. Mm-hmm. This is just one of many stories and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter. Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. Help build the movement by joining our Patreon. Now, let's get back to our Project 500 podcast. What has been the most impactful moment you've had as an educator thus far? Let's see. Most impactful. I would have to say a student that I had my fourth year of teaching just this year during COVID reached back out to me, sent me an email and told me, Miss King, when I was in eighth grade and I told you that I wanted to be a movie animator, you told me you can be anything you want. He said, I told some of my other teachers and they said, "Mm, I'm not sure if that's really going to work. You know, I don't know. And they weren't as encouraging And he reached out to me and he said, I'm in my senior year of college and I am a movie animator. And to hear that, like, wow, thank you. Thank you for letting me know that I did something that is important to you. That's that's long term. Short term, I've had students just this school year, not even my students, students across the hall in another teacher's classroom have reached out and thanked me because I took the time to say, why are you crying? What's going on? What's up? What do we need? Just to figure out what's going on with them and 
to reach out to them and to go to their teachers and say, hey, I noticed this, that, and the other about so-and-so. I don't have a class right now. If they need to come sit in my room, they can work on stuff. I can help them. And that has been impactful for me to see that I've made an impact with students from, what, 13, no, 14, 10 years ago (laughs) versus 10 days ago. Reflecting over your past 14 years as an educator and also your experiences that you had as a student growing up, what is the state of education in Black America and how did we get here? Speaking from my experience, I'm going to speak on it in terms of the disabilities and the labeling because I feel like we have not gotten a fair shot or we've been labeled as things that we're not. And so in the realm of disabilities, I feel like we are at a disadvantage. We have tried to integrate. We have tried to segregate. We have tried to do all these different things. We have, in my community, built new schools on the north side, which is where the African-Americans tend to live. And basically all we did was gave them a new building, but shoved everything in there, didn't change anything. But then on the South side, we've given them a new school as well. Didn't change anything, but we haven't done anything to help out those schools. We haven't done anything to help out those children with those disabilities. And so we have IEPs. But in those IEPs, we have things that are said like do this or do that, you know, accommodate them this way or give them extra time. And it's just checking a box versus Maybe we need to get to the root. Maybe they're hungry. Maybe their clothes aren't clean. Maybe what they're experiencing at home is the reason. And so I, I just see it as this paradigm as education, unfortunately, sometimes is a checkbox. Is a checkbox. What do we do? We get their IEPs. We read through them. We say, okay, I've done this. I've spent 30 minutes a week because I did, you know, maybe 10 minutes a day or five minutes a day, and I'm just checking a box versus how can I really service these students? And, you know, that's not even just with our African-American children. That's with our Hispanic children. That's even with our white children. And it's not the children. If you ask any educator, what is it about education that is probably the most draining or the hardest part? And we'll say the paperwork, the checking the box. If I could just work with my kids and do what I know is best for them, that's why we got into education. How have you grown since you began your career? I have grown so much. I remember my first years of teaching and when take late work, when it, when it, take late homework, assigned homework every night with plethora of problems. And over the years, as my nieces were born, because I don't have any children of my own, but as my nieces were born and we go to visit and we go out to dinner one night and you get home and you're like, oh my goodness, it's like eight o'clock. You need to get in the bed and in the shower, but you haven't done your homework. Oh no, your teacher's going to be mad. And I realized this is not life. You know, yes, I give homework and it might be a couple problems a night. And I tell my kids, okay, you might not do it one night. You know, don't make it a habit. Don't do it every single night. But if there's one night that you're like, you know, tonight was my birthday. 
I'm like, oh my goodness, hopefully you celebrate it. Don't worry about it. And that has really changed. I remember one time one of my students didn't do her work and I fussed at her and I fussed and I fussed and I was upset and I was upset she didn't say anything. And that evening, her mom emailed me and she was like, Miss King, I meant to email you earlier, like last night, but it's just, she said, I had a miscarriage last night. And she said, and that's why she didn't do her homework. And I'm really sorry. And she just came home real distressed because she had disappointed you. And at that moment right there, I said, you know what? It's not even worth it. You know, and in this pandemic right now, we don't know what's going on in these kids' house. We don't know how they're experiencing this trauma. And so for me, the growth has just been, I need to love on them. If they learn some math from me, wonderful. But if they know that I care for them and I'm there for them, no matter what, I've done my job. Mm-hmm. How do you help your Black kids particularly, girls particularly, fall in love with math? You mentioned that you had two educators. One was a woman, one was a math teacher. Both made this so incredibly fun for you. How do you find that like you've helped introduce your kids and help them fall in love with math? So generally when students come into my classroom, they I'm not good at math. I don't like math. I'm not good at math. And I said, well, give me the opportunity. Give me the chance. Just try it for a couple of weeks with me. And if you're still not getting it and we try it a different way and you still don't get it, you know what? You can be, I don't like math. I try to do games and activities. I try to get them to do art. I try to incorporate everything because when we were in school, we just sat, you know, we just did our problems. For me, it was great because I love math and I just can see the patterns. I just do the problems. But for these students who math is not their thing, we do an Easter egg hunt where they go and pick up the problems. I mean, they open the egg, they do the problem inside of it. Man, it's, it's a worksheet. But guess what? Because they're walking around and they're doing it, they love it. And so I just try to make it engaging. I try to speak to them. You know, I had a student that was like, I can't do word problems because of my dyslexia. Man, I just hate word problems. I hate this. And I said, I understand. You know, I have dyslexia too. I said, y'all know I tell you straight up front. I said, so let's do this. I said, for me, when I read things out loud, it makes all the difference. I said, so read it out loud to me. And he read it out loud to me. And he was like, oh, okay. I said, and guess what? If you need to do that during a test, now you can't be like, okay, so there are five, da- you can't do that, but you can <laughs> talk to yourself and you can say there are five. Da-da-da. I said, I do it all the time. And he said, okay, yes, ma'am. You know, I have one girl by just me telling her that I had dyslexia and she also has dyslexia and she can see my degrees on the wall. She can see my national board. She can do my, see my master's. She can see my bachelor's degree because she can see all of those. But I've also told her that I have a disability. She went home and she told her parents, you know what? Miss King has dyslexia, but she can do all this stuff. So I'm going to try. I'm going to make sure I do my best. And her mom emailed me and she was like, I don't know what you told my child or She said, you just told her that you had dyslexia. And she said, she has a totally different outlook than last year. I was like, well, praise the Lord, because I'm open and I'm transparent. And you share your story. It's amazing how you pour into students. It's like the overflow. 
Like somehow you were able to, and maybe it was that HBCU experience where you were able to get filled up from the elementary experience you had so that you can pour into these students at such a critical time in their development. Speaking of critical times in development, you've mentioned your degrees and your national board certification in math, but you you also low-key said that you taught in Korea for a minute. I did. So what were you doing in Korea? Tell us a little bit. So what was your educator journey? In 2000, August of 2000, I came to Huntsville, Alabama, and I left here in May of 2004 with my bachelor's degree. In October of 2004, I went to Korea where I taught English and religion at a institute where they were just trying to learn the conversational English. I was there until May of 2005, and then I came home. I decided to do that because I, I knew I was going to go to grad school. I knew I was going to get my degree in education, but I didn't feel like just jumping right in. You know, I wasn't that type of student in high school that wanted to finish, you know, early because I always tell, and I tell my students nowadays, what are you going to do? You're just going to go and work and have to pay taxes. Enjoy the moments that you're at. And so I was at my sister's and one of her friends was talking about Korea and this and this. And he was like, oh, you should try it. You should go. And I was like, okay, yeah, never heard of it, but whatever. And then the very next weekend, I was at another school and I was looking through their newspaper and a full page ad about this same institute that I've never heard about popped up and I said, Lord, I think you're trying to tell me something. And I said, okay, you know, I said, if this falls into place, this falls into place, this falls into place, I will go. Everything fell into place. And I remember telling my parents that I wanted to go and both of them were like, is there anything we can do to discourage you from going? And I said, no. And they said, you have our support because they wanted to make sure that it was my decision I've had, I had friends that were like, oh, wait, I want to go. Wait a couple months. I'm going to get all my stuff ready to go. And I said, I have to go now because I have to go. I said, now, if you come, I'll be so happy. But if I don't go and I wait for you and we never go, I will have put my life on hold. And so I did it. And I think that's another thing that took me out of my shell, took me out of wherever I was. I mean, I went to a foreign country. I went somewhere that I didn't speak the language. And so I had to become sensitive to, you know what, let me just fall into place. Let me just figure out what I need to do. And so I'm very, very sensitive to cultures when they come into my classroom, you know, questions that were asked of me while I was there. And it was just the best experience. I tell everybody, if you have the opportunity before you start in your career, definitely do it. It was the best time for me to go. I didn't have any bills. I didn't have a career that had started. And I felt like I was walking away from it. But it was the best experience, hands down, that I have ever had. What advice do you have for first-year educators? First-year educators, I have a few pieces of advice. One came from my aunt who taught for 30 years. And she told me, never strive for perfect attendance. And at first I didn't get it. I was like, what do you mean? I'm just going to go to work. But some times you have to take off for your mental health, for your students' well-being, and you have to take care of yourself. 
another piece of advice that I would give, find you a mentor, find your person, that person that when you go to them, they, they encourage you or they tell you like it is. Because there's sometimes that people are just your yes people and they tell you what you want to hear. And sometimes that is not good. Sometimes you have to have those people that say what you're doing is not right for kids. Step back and look at it. And so you definitely need to find that person that's going to be in your corner, whether it's to tell you, yeah, that's a, that's a phenomenal idea or to tell you that's not what you need to do. And my last piece of advice that I would tell you, pick your battles. Pick your battles because there are some battles that are worth fighting. And some of those battles are social justice battles. But the battle of where's your pencil, where's your piece of paper, that's not the battle to have. And if you have a community resource where you can get free school supplies, if you can get parents to help you out, if you can get other teachers if someone wants to reach out to me and we can figure out how to do that so that when your kids come in the classroom, Miss King, I need a pencil, pencil box, go grab it. Miss King, I need some paper basket back there, whatever they need, you've got it for them because at the end of the day, it's yeah, we're teaching responsibility and yes, we want them to have those things. But nine times out of 10, when I go to a faculty meeting, Hey, who's got a pencil? Nine times out of 10, when I get to work and I've left something on my couch, and I'm like, man, either I turn around and come get it because I have time or I make another copy. But our students don't have that benefit every, every day. And so giving them that grace, making sure that you're picking those battles. And there's some battles that you do got to fight. I, I totally understand that. There's some battles that, okay, Johnny, you have never had a pencil in my classroom. So guess what? You better go hide the one I gave you today so that you know exactly where it is tomorrow. But just giving them those tools, because after a while, Miss King, I still got your pencil. Good job. I'm proud of you because that's your pencil, Miss King. And, and they don't ask the question. They just get started. So those are my three pieces of advice. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for walking us through your experiences and also sharing the wisdom from your educators, from your auntie from your grandma, who is the speech pathologist. My mother is a speech pathologist. So shout out to the black speech pathologists out there. We see you. We appreciate you. But are there any black educators that you would like to thank? And before you even get started, so I, I shouted out your grandma and your auntie. But of course, I have to shout out your sister, Terry. Shout out to Terry. She's the one who came on the podcast and shared her story. And when she said that she had a sister who was an educator, I was like, please, Terry, please tell me your sister's information. So thank you for sharing your story. Any other black educators though? Yes. Do I have to just choose one? No, no. Tell them all. All right. Well, I would like to shout out Tara Young. I was a TA for her when I was in college. And she's become one of my really good friends. Symmetris Gohana is also an educator. I worked with her the summer before I got my first job. And she encouraged me to apply for the jobs, to put myself out there. And I really appreciate that. Wanda Davis, it's a friend from church that I have that is a phenomenal educator. And she literally 
will just talk you off a ledge. Whatever you need, she's there for you. She has wisdom beyond compare. I would love to shout out my real good friend, Stacy Humes. Ever since I've been teaching at Discovery Middle School, she has been there. She's been in different leadership roles, but when she gives it to you, she's my person. She's going to be the one that tells me, you're doing a phenomenal job, but she's also going to be the one that tells me, you got to get your stuff together. And that is probably the world to me because she will tell me like it is. And my last one, Leslie Carlisle, she is an elementary teacher. And that's probably one of the, well, outside of Miss Wanda Davis, Leslie Carlisle is an elementary education teacher. And just to see what she has done, she is a teacher that moved from the south side of the city, which is more affluent. And she chose to come to the north side and teach. And to me, she said, I want to give back to my community. I want to, where I live is where I want to teach. And to me, that is something that you don't hear a lot of people doing. And that to me is an educator that has a superpower that is willing to take it on full force. Mm-hmm. Shout out to those educators fighting those social justice battles, like you said. Thank you again for coming on the show and everything that you've done. It was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. Thank you. This has been an honor and I am blessed to share my story. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Educators Matter. Are you ready to share your story? Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org to sign up. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a black teacher today.